Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at antiochchurch.org. Thanks for listening. Hey there, Antioch Church. My name is Linda Van Vorst, and I am one of your pastors. It brings me great joy to seek Jesus and proclaim his love this morning. Now, when I first read the scripture text for today, I laughed out loud and squirmed a bit because I hate snakes. And our texts for today have an ongoing snake motif. You see, growing up, my brothers had snakes. And these snakes would often get out and we would find them behind our curtains or under our pillows. Now, fast forward a few decades, and I have two boys of my own who absolutely love snakes, but I still despise them, and I don't think I'm alone. This morning, albeit through snakes, I believe our passages have a lot to say about the incredible character of God and the great news of Jesus. So please open your Bibles to number 21. A big shout out to my two boys, Judah and Josiah, for reading this passage. Before we jump in, I want to provide a little background. As you might remember, the Israelites had been rescued from slavery in Egypt and were on their journey home. What should have been a manageable journey turned into a lengthy trek as 11 days stretched into 40 years when they were wandering around the wilderness. Have you ever been on a long trip? I grew up in LA, then went off to college in Chicago, and that drive was long. At the end of the school year, my best friend flew out and we were going to drive back to LA. While we were talking and singing, we missed an important turn, only to find ourselves at the Canadian border. Whoops! This was back in the day when we would map quest directions, then print them out, meaning we had no clue how to get home. Not knowing how to get from one place to another can be nerve-wracking and frustrating. When the journey is long and the end is not in sight, it is really easy to complain. And the Israelites proved that it sure is easy to complain. In fact, if you were to read through the story of the Israelites in Exodus and Numbers, you would see that the Israelites complained a lot. Check it out. In Exodus 5, before they even left Egypt, the Israelites complained because Moses spoke to Pharaoh. In Exodus 14, before the sea split, they complained to Moses and said, you only brought us out here to kill us. In Exodus 15, they complained about the taste of the water. In Exodus 16, they complained about being hungry, so God gave them manna to eat every morning. In Exodus 17, they complained about being thirsty again, so God provided water again. In Exodus 32, they complained that the journey was taking too long. In Numbers 11, they complained about the food again. In Numbers 12, they complained about Moses' leadership. In Numbers 14, they complained about the size of the people in the land that God had provided and said they wanted to go somewhere else. 
In Numbers 14, they complained about Moses again and asked for a new leader. In number 16, they complained about Moses again. In Numbers 20, they complained that there was no water, which brings us to today's passage in Numbers 21, where we find the Israelites complaining about the food again. Specifically, they say, we loathe this worthless food. That's a lot of complaining. Nowadays, we probably don't complain about the water. Not only is water easily accessible, but we have some of the most delicious water I've ever tasted. And we probably don't complain about the food because the options are just about endless at any grocery store around. But what they were really complaining about was God's plan and God's provision. They did not like how things were unfolding. They wanted something else. We can find ourselves in a similar place when things get hard and don't look like we hoped they would, or if we don't like what we have been given. Despite God's continued provision for the Israelites, like the manna and the quail, which literally fell from the heavens each morning, and the clean water that came from a rock, God's people continued to complain. The picture that comes to my mind is this massive crowd of Veruca Salts, the whining and complaining child in Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory, who is never satisfied, no matter how much she has. I can almost hear the Israelites saying to God, I want it and I want it now. In Numbers 21.5, we learn that the Israelites didn't simply complain to God. In fact, it gets worse. You see, the Israelites spoke out against God. We see that they had forgotten it was their fault that they were wandering through the wilderness. It was their own sin which required them to be in the wilderness for an entire generation. And so they thought it made sense to curse and speak badly about God. However, here we learn that it is a big deal when someone insults God. Apparently God had enough of this. In verse six, we learn that poisonous snakes invaded the camp, which again, is my absolute worst nightmare. Snakes invading my space and coming dangerously close, not only to me, but to my family and my friends too. Think about it. Back then, tents did not have doors that zipped. In fact, I doubt there was a way to get away from these snakes. I can imagine those poisonous snakes finding their way into my blankets, hiding out in the shade, and emerging at the most inopportune times. We learned that their bites caused many people to die, meaning these Israelites were grieving the loss of people they loved, people they had walked with, laughed with, collected food with, and experienced miracles with. In this moment of despair, they did something very brave. In verse seven, we see that the people more specifically, the entire tribe came to their leader, Moses, and said, We sinned when we spoke out against God and you. Pray to God 
and ask God to take these snakes from us. I want to be clear that not all hardship is the consequence of sin. Sometimes life is just hard. We aren't in Eden anymore. But we learn in the scriptures that this hardship was the consequence of sin. The Israelites knew that they were in the wrong. Instead of spinning a story to make themselves look good or feel better, they chose to repent. If hearing the word repent makes you squirm, I want to acknowledge that you are not alone. We don't tend to have a positive association with the word repentance. Maybe this word conjures up an image of a guy standing on the street corner or in the stands at a sports game holding up a sign which reads, repent for the end is near. That guy makes us all feel uncomfortable. But in the Gospel of Mark, we learn that Jesus begins his ministry by saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And the last recorded words we have of Jesus when he is speaking to the churches in the book of Revelation is, those whom I love, I discipline. So therefore be earnest and repent. Jesus himself frames his entire ministry with the idea of repentance. The word repentance simply means a change, but it's not just a change of thought. Repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of heart and life. The Israelites knew they were in the wrong. They were not simply beating themselves up by rehashing their shortcomings. Instead, they knew that something needed to change. So they went to Moses and they said, we sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. I can only imagine the nerves of the Israelites as they approached Moses. They were going to take responsibility for the tragedy of the snakes. Now take a minute and imagine this from Moses's angle. The Israelites had just admitted to being terrible to him, meaning Moses had the choice to respond in bitterness or in mercy. Have you ever found yourself in a situation like this? It's no easy choice. As we keep reading, we find that Moses responded with their good in mind. Not because Moses was such a good guy, but because God's spirit worked through Moses so he could extend mercy and love to his friends and family who had betrayed him. We see that Moses prayed for the people and ask God to take the serpents away. I find it interesting that the Israelites knew they could admit their disobedience to God. Not just their little mistakes, but their colossal offenses like blasphemy, which had caused devastating consequences. It seems they knew God still cared about them that they could count on God's mercy, even though they had spoken ill about his very nature. They knew they could confess their sin to God because they were confident about the character of God. They were certain that God's mercy has no end. They knew they could still cry out to God because God 
always has an ear for his children. They knew God longs to display love to the world. They were confident that they could look to God and find rescue. And sure enough, God came to their rescue, but not the way they had expected. God did not simply make the snakes disappear. Instead, God told Moses to make a bronze snake and to put it up on a pole. So Moses gathered all the brass and copper from camp, melted it down, formed it into the likeness of a serpent, then put it on a pole. This symbol may sound familiar to you. Here it is. Do you recognize it? The next time you see an ambulance, look for the image of a snake entwined in a staff. I hope it will remind you of this strange story, which will in turn remind you of God's incredible character. Then God gives instructions to the Israelites. If you are bitten by a serpent, look at this bronze serpent on a pole and you will live. I doubt the Israelites wanted to fix their eyes on a bronze snake while actual snakes were slithering around and biting them. But God needed them to look at his judgment so they could receive his mercy. When the Israelites looked to the bronze serpent held high on that pole, they were saved from the punishment they deserve. Let's level here. Scientifically speaking, and logically speaking, this doesn't even make sense. Looking at a bronze serpent on a pole cannot remove the deadly venom coursing through your veins. However, here we learn that it can if God says it can. That's good news for them, and it points to even better news for us. You see this coin? When you see God's judgment in the Bible or experience the consequences of sin in your own life, I encourage you to recognize it. Call it what it is, but don't leave it at that. Keep looking and then turn it over because when you experience God's judgment, you can be absolutely certain that God's infinite mercy is on the other side of that very same coin. God's judgment and mercy are inseparable. God loves justice as much as God loves mercy. God is both equally. In Numbers, we see that the Israelites experienced judgment because of their actions. Then they experienced God's mercy when they looked at the bronze snake on the pole. We see that God is both just and full of mercy. While these qualities might seem contradictory, I want to point out that just because we have trouble expressing these characteristics at the same time, this does not mean that God does. In order to understand the just side of God, we must acknowledge that God takes sin seriously. In Numbers 21, we see that God does not ignore the sins of the Israelites. In fact, we see the very opposite. God sent snakes as judgment because God had had it with their complaining and with their blasphemy. We see that the way people act does 
matter to God. And when we do not act in a manner that is good or right or fair or in love, God does not tolerate our sin. And yet, in infinite mercy, we see that God provides a way to satisfy the punishment and provide rescue. God acts with compassion and forgiveness, even though it is within God's power to punish. When bitten, if a person looked at the bronze serpent, they were healed. Here, God displays incredible compassion. This is the way that God shows love. Do you tend to lean towards one of these attributes over the other? Do you imagine God as primarily merciful? Do you hope that God tolerates your sin and doesn't think it to be a big deal? Or do you think God as primarily just? Do you suspect that God is always angry at you and there's nothing you can do to live up to this standard? As theologian A.W. Tozer says, what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Thankfully, God is not either or. In this story and throughout the story of the Bible, we see that God's judgment and mercy go hand in hand. God delivers judgment, but then God offers mercy. This isn't backpedaling or flip-flopping. It is God's divine nature on full display. Because God is holy, God must deal with our sin. Because God is love, God chooses to offer us mercy. Flip ahead to our New Testament passage, read by the Cackley kids. Thanks, Mia, Liam, and Nolan. In John 3, we see that the Israelites are not the only people whom God instructed to look up from a place of fear. In John 3, Jesus says, Just as Moses lifted up the bronze snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who looks to him will have eternal life. Whereas the bronze serpent was provided to rescue the rebellious Israelites, Jesus was also lifted up on the cross in order to rescue anyone who would look to him. When Jesus was lifted up on the cross, God in effect declared, look, that which is killing you is now taken care of in me. Look to me and live. It is important to look at Jesus and remember that his sacrifice met the requirement for our sin and that it is only because of this sacrifice that we can experience and enjoy God's mercy. As Pete said last week, the good news is Christ crucified. Jesus became our sin on the cross, the sin we've inherited, the sins we have committed, the sins we have participated in, the sins we have ignored, and the sins we will commit. All of it hung on the pole of the cross in the person of Jesus. Don't miss this. It's too wonderful. The Israelites looked to a snake on a pole for healing from poisonous venom. 
we look to the Savior on the cross to heal us from the poison of sin. But before we can celebrate the rescuer, we need to recognize our need to be rescued. We need to recognize our sin. We all sin. Although if I'm honest, this is something I would rather overlook. A few years back, as I was folding a big pile of laundry, a surprising thought drifted through my mind. It was, I don't think I have any sin that needs to be forgiven. I hesitate to tell you this because it's really vulnerable and even embarrassing. But I think this is more common than not. In fact, this past week, I stumbled upon two different people saying the same thing. As the author and pastor Paul David Tripp says, I knew every biblical story and could quote many key Bible passages from memory, but had no sense of spiritual need. One particular night, the words of Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, gripped me. It was then that I was given an unexpected and undeserved gift, the knowledge of my sin. Similarly, the artist and author Lauren Wright Pittman says, Confession. I struggle to acknowledge the weight of my sin. The word sin feels distant. I have no problem understanding corporate sin and the larger systems of sin in our society. I even strive to understand my own place in those sinful structures. But I flounder in recognizing my sin in the everyday. When I do things that harm people and the earth, I do my best to shove that thing as far down in my heart as I can, and then I just forget about it. I have gotten so good at this that I almost don't recognize the sin in the first place. It's already hidden and forgotten. I'm both relieved and saddened because I don't think I'm the only one who has struggled to recognize my sin and my need for a savior. While folding that mountain of laundry, I prayed one of the most nerve wracking prayers I have prayed in my 36 years of life. I asked God to show me my sin. And guess what? I have a lot of sin. I started to notice attitudes and motivations and behaviors that I was not proud of. My sin. We all bear the burden of sin. And it is from this place where I have come to know and trust the joy and good news of Jesus. We have been rescued from the pain and punishment of our sin by Christ alone. Why did Jesus do this for us? In our Ephesians passage, read by my wonderful husband, Travis, we learn that Jesus did this for us so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us. Jesus did this to be kind to us, to display his love for us. God wants us to experience true, full, and complete love. Our God judges, 
then delivers and heals, redeems and saves because God's love is steadfast and enduring. The invitation of this strange story in the wilderness is to take confidence in God's character. Our God is both completely just and full of mercy. Because God is just, we are invited to recognize and confess our sin. Because God is just, we recognize that judgment is necessary. Because God is merciful, we look to Jesus and trust that Jesus took our punishment. Because God is merciful, we can count on God's tender, never-ending mercy each and every day. As we prepare for Pastor Pete to lead us in communion, I invite you to take this opportunity to recognize and confess your sin and find comfort and joy in the unending mercy of Jesus. Jesus truly is the best news in the world. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen.